Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my globally identified friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about model under, just, and over-identification, starting with the algebraic foundations and moving into implications for the practice of structural equation modeling. Along the way, we also mention shagging cars, new Ferraris, bank statements, pre-recorded reactions, the quantitude implied contract, necessary and sufficient, walk of shame, Patrick's Ra's impression, working with explosives, potluck freeloaders, fixing a loading to your home address, and bad maps. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. When you were growing up, were cars important to you as a teenager? So I wasn't one of the kids who spent all their lives in auto shop and skipped class to work on their cars in the parking lot outside the school where everyone in class could see them (laughs) working on their cars. I wasn't one of those kids. I look back on teenage and even in my 20s, and cars were so important to me. I loved Mm -hmm. cars. I worked as a teenager at a car lot. Mm. All right, for European listeners, particularly in Great Britain, what I'm about to say does not mean what you think it means. (laughs) Wow. So I'm going to give a trigger warning here. Okay. As a teenager, I shagged cars. Yeah, baby. That means (laughs) I went and got them and brought them back. So in America, Uh to shag something is like baseball, you shag fly balls. Right. I shagged cars. Very shagadelic. (laughs) That just means that as a teenager, I drove, I parked, I washed, and there was no job better for a 16-year-old than to go clock in every day and drive brand new cars. I drove them off of trucks. I delivered them. I did all this. It was just amazing. All right, but here's my point. Because, you know, so rarely do I have one. It's kind of nice. No, I'm I'm excited. Back in the day, a buddy and I lived when we were in grad school in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mm -hmm. Not all of Scottsdale is upscale. We lived in the non-upscale part of Scottsdale. Downscale. It was downscale Scottsdale. Mm -hmm. Up the road was a Ferrari dealership. And he and I got into our mind once that we wanted to test drive a Ferrari. All right. We are punk ass nobodies. Are you like 20s? We're in our mid 20s. It was grad school. I was at Arizona State. Did you have the earring yet? I did not have the earring yet. Thank you for highlighting that. Sure. We had about $3 between the two of us. Uh And we thought, let's go test drive a Ferrari. So we walked up. It was only about three blocks from where we lived. All right, so if you're a Ferrari salesman, in walk two 25-year-olds who did not drive to your dealership. They walked in. (laughs) And we had this great idea of, we'll pretend like we're seriously interested in buying a Ferrari. Oh, yeah. And so this guy comes out, and kudos to him is he was totally cool. He was totally nice. He was not, I'm going to call the police if you two don't leave. And we pick one to test drive. It was like a Testarossa or something. (laughs) And so the guy said, absolutely. Now he said, of course, because it's a Ferrari, we need to sign some paperwork for insurance. (laughs) I'm also going to need to see a bank statement. I just heard a needle drag across (laughs) the record. (laughs) (laughs) And we both kind of smiled. And then the three of us smiled. And we said, well, we'll go get that and we'll come back. (laughs) Let me go shag that bank statement. We're going to go shag that (laughs) bank statement. 
that says I have $18 in my bank account. And again, I really do admire the guy was like, I'm looking forward to it. You come on back. But yet again, I'm able to take a completely arbitrary story and say, that is model identification. (laughs) Okay. Do you want to see my link? (laughs) I would ask you to drive me from point A to point B. But given that bank statement, I think you'd probably have to walk me from point A to point B. But go ahead. I had to prove that I could afford to buy the Ferrari before they would let me test drive it. So you had to prove in order to get something fancy that you had sufficient resources to be able to do that. You repeated the point I just said perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so model identification. I like the idea that you have to have enough Enough something. You have to be able to afford the thing that you're trying to get. And if I remember correctly, you had a wrap that included something. (laughs) No, you are not thinking about that correctly. I did not have a wrap. I allowed you to edit that episode and you created a wrap. Uh Specification, identification, estimation, evaluation, respecification, interpretation. 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 They are the six shun steps. They apply particularly well to the structural equation model, but they scale up across a lot of things. And here's the deal. You and I talk out our butts about the whiteboard problem, right? You could have just ended that sentence at talking out our butts, but okay. We need to clarify that. Mm -hmm. That is specification, right? And we talk and talk and talk about what is your model. And we probably talked more than we needed to at the beginning of this season about estimation, right? And we talked about OLS and ML and two-stage least squares. And then it turns out partial least squares is not a method of estimation. I learned that the hard way. Notice that's the first shun and the third shun, because the second shun, we go, <coughs> identification. <coughs> Wait, excuse me, what was that? What was that? <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing. Look at this estimator I have. Woohoo! Maybe we need to back up a step and say, whoa, 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 whoa. That little minor thing (laughs) of the bank statement. Yeah. Identification is really weird because it is so important and I don't know what the hell to do with it. (laughs) I mean, I can say some things about it in class and I do. And God knows we're going to fill an episode about it here. (laughs) But it's hard to translate it into concrete actions when it comes to practice. At least that's how it is for me. And that's something I think we'd have to pull apart a little bit. Well, and it's another parenting thing, right? Kind of do as I say, not as I do. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching SEM this very semester. Okay. And I have an entire section on identification. And I talk about these rules and heuristics and necessary but not sufficient and sufficient but not necessary. And then I get to the end of it and I say, but you'll probably never encounter this in practice. No reviewer is going to ask you for it. No editor is going to ask you for it. Your advisor doesn't even understand it. So I am willing to admit we send mixed messages. Before we get to model identification, though, the bottom line is a model can't run if it isn't identified. 
And you might not attend to identification, but I'm telling you, when it goes wrong, things are really, really bad. So understanding how it works and what might be causing you problems when you ignore it, I think is probably worthwhile. If you're proposing a dissertation, if you've submitted a multi-million dollar RO1, you've got to establish that you can do that. You've got to establish that you have the resources to buy that model. And it's fundamental to what we do. Yeah. Well, how would you feel about me leading you through some examples building up this idea? Can we do that? How long do you think that'll take? (laughs) Half an hour? Can you do it in half an hour? You know what? Greg was editing an episode. I don't remember who it was, but you sent me a text and said, will you please send me an audio file that has, "Uh uh-huh, oh, huh, oh. Because at one point there was this long thing where somebody was talking and I damn near went to sleep. Nothing, not, not, absolutely nothing. So wait, okay, I'll just get that out of the way now. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, uh-huh. Okay, go ahead. Okay, good. And I can spread those out. And you go ahead. (laughs) Uh. Okay. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to talk about identification. And I'm going to start off with an intuitive example. And then I'm going to move into something that's a little bit more algebraic. And then I'm going to try and translate it into the modeling world. Right. So I want everybody to imagine that there's one dot on a piece of paper, just one dot. And now your task is to fit a line through that dot. I'm pretty sure that you can do that, Patrick. Wake up, Patrick. Uh. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure that everyone out there can do that perfectly. The challenge is that none of us will come up with the same solution. There's actually an infinite number of solutions that fit that perfectly. And no matter where I put the dot, it's not just a dot that's over on the left side. It could be a dot on the right side. Any dot I throw on the page, that is absolutely true for. This is a problem of what we call under-identification. There are multiple solutions to this problem, and they all fit perfectly no matter what the data are. Oh. Excellent. So now I have two dots on the paper. I randomly throw two dots at the paper. We're going to assume that they didn't happen to fall in exactly the same spot. That is possible. Empirically, that can happen. But let's assume that the two dots fall in different places. And I ask you to fit a line to that. You can do that. And I ask anybody out there to fit a line to that. And they can do that too. The difference between this example and the previous example, though, is that everybody is putting in the exact same line. And if I randomly draw two different points, we all draw the same line. Two other points, we all draw exactly the same line. This is a just identified situation where there's one solution, it fits perfectly. Now, I mentioned if the points had fallen on top of each other just randomly, that would be an example of under-identification because even though we had two data points, the data were such that we found ourselves in that situation where there are an infinite number of solutions again. We could actually call that empirical under-identification because it's something unique about the data that puts us in that particular situation. So putting it in terms I can understand, mm-hmm. <laughs> under-identified is you don't have enough money for the Ferrari. And just identified is you have exactly enough money for the Ferrari. I like it. Absolutely. But what if you have more than enough money for the Ferrari? (laughs) Maybe we don't have to worry (laughs) about that situation. Well, okay. So imagine now I randomly throw three dots at a piece of paper and I ask you to fit a line through there as best you can. And I could ask someone else and someone else and someone else. And you know what? We all might come up with different lines. 
But if we all agree on a criterion for what makes a line the best line, then in fact, we would all come up with the same line there. This is an over-identified situation where there are multiple solutions that we could have, and none of them are going to fit perfectly unless those three points wind up falling exactly on a line. It's not very likely, though. So there are multiple solutions that we could have, and we choose among those multiple solutions based on some definition that we agree upon is the best. And what we're accustomed to in our OLS lives is fitting a line that minimizes the sum of squared residuals in the Y direction, blah, blah, blah. That's one criterion. And if we all agreed that that was a criterion, then boom, even though all the points don't fall on that line, we would find ourselves in the position of having the same line. So what does that mean about a Ferrari? Well, the Ferrari implications are self-evident, so I will allow you (laughs) to discover them in a small group learning experience. Well, I sit over here and play Angry Birds. Okay. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, you know, when I asked about drawing a line, one way to think about that that starts to become a little bit more concrete formulaically is that when we're trying to draw a line, we're thinking about a slope and an intercept, right? Those two pieces of information. And when there was only one dot, like one datum, and we were trying to figure out both a slope and an intercept, we had an infinite number of choices. When there were two dots, two pieces of information, and we were trying to figure out a slope and an intercept, things could work out just perfectly. Two pieces of information, two things that we were trying to figure out. When we had three points, three pieces of information, but two things that we were trying to find values for, a slope and an intercept, we found ourselves in that interesting position where we had too much money, right? And so we had to decide how to fit, how to find values for the slope and the intercept that we would all agree on if we could. And so the idea of the amount of information you have relative to the number of things that you're trying to estimate is absolutely at the core of identification. And it goes back to middle school math and that notion of X plus Y equals five. How many unknowns are there? Two. Mm -hmm. How many knowns are there? One. You have fewer pieces of things you know than things that you want to obtain. So you are under-identified. So part of this stuff gets insanely complicated, but part of it really is what do you want and what do you have and what is the relation between those two? I like that you're transitioning this to algebra because ultimately what's under the hood in the modeling that you and I do is algebra. And so if we take your example, X plus Y equals five, and I ask everybody out there to solve that, we are all going to come up with different answers, right? Multiple solutions exist. And in fact, if you plotted that line, X plus Y equals five, it would be a line, meaning that there's an infinite number of combinations of X and Y that actually make that work. That is the under-identified model. If I told you, and this I think is really symbolic of a lot of things, if I told you X plus Y equals five, but we're going to constrain X to zero then all of us are going to solve that exactly. Then it becomes a just identified situation. And one way to think about that algebraically is if I draw the line x plus y equals five and I draw the line x equals zero, those are gonna cross in one place. And that's the place where x is zero, obviously. And y is? Bueller, Bueller. Five, it's five. If Patrick had been paying attention, he would have shagged a five there. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) So one thing that I just tried to do there was work in the word constraint, because the word constraint is really important in our world when it comes to identification. I also made a constraint to zero because in modeling, we do a lot of constraints that involve zero, but we don't have to. If you said X plus Y equals five, and I said X is constrained to three, 
same thing would happen, right? We would find ourselves in a situation where we would be just identified. One way to think about it is we would have two equations and two unknowns, but once X gets fixed, we're down to solving for one unknown. But the constraint of what X is equal to, whether it's zero or three, doesn't actually matter. And then it starts getting fun because you can start thinking really creatively. So, okay, sure, we can say x equals zero. Well, x is x, but it's really zero. We can say x equals three. Okay, similarly, fine. Well, what's a kind of constraint that you could impose where we still would uniquely estimate x and y, but we make that an identified system? Well, let's say that you have to solve x plus y equals 5, but with the constraint that x and y have to equal one another. It's still a constraint, but we're not fixing one to a numerical value. Now there is only one value that x and y can obtain that gives the sum of 5 when they are held equal to one another. So that's another way we can impose a constraint where we don't either fix a value to zero or fix it to some non-zero value, but we say, okay, we got these two things that live in the wild. They can obtain a unique numerical value, but we're going to put boundaries on what those can be. That's a perfect example. Two equations, two unknowns, and it represents the type of constraint that we impose all the time. You and I might have a model where we have some factor loadings and we want to constrain loadings to be equal at different time points. This is a perfect example of something that we wind up doing. And now if we go back to our algebra example, x plus y is equal to 5 and x is equal to y, we have a just identified system again. Whether you think about it as two equations and two unknowns or as you are drawing two lines and they intersect at one point, this is absolutely solvable. And it doesn't have to be x equals y as the equality constraint. You could start doing funkier things. You could do x is equal to 2y or other relations between x and y also and still wind up having an identified system. And that actually maps onto a lot of things that we wind up doing. And this is part of the implied contract that we have with you listeners which is you can't tell anybody that quantitative methods is actually pretty easy because notice we have not left middle school math (laughs) and we all need to keep the perspective that what we do is really complicated and only a very small number of people are able to do what we do. All right, that is the image that we want to maintain and your implicit agreement by listening to us talk is that you're not going to tell anyone else that we generally don't move out of middle school (laughs) emotionally socially developmentally or mathematically (laughs) uh yeah me (laughs) me all right (laughs) all right brace yourself now it is time to move out of middle school i mean only sort of though You and I don't deal with X and Y in the algebra sense, but what we do really is algebraically equivalent. It's just that X and Y are parameters now in whatever model we're analyzing. And all of this can be stripped down into some very basic ideas. One is the idea that if you have a model with P variables, the information that those P variables bring to the table, at least the way it's useful for us to think about it, is that P variables bring with them some variances and covariances, and they also bring means. We'll probably ignore the means for what we're going to talk about right now, but P variables bring how many unique pieces of information? 
For variances, covariances, and means, here's your parlor trick, P times P plus 1 divided by 2 plus P. There you go. And that plus P represents the P means that are added on. If you're analyzing a mean structure on top of a covariance structure, if you're just focusing on a covariance structure, then you just get that first part, P times P plus 1 over 2. I'm just going to talk about the covariance structure stuff for now. That quantity we sometimes refer to as U, the number of unique pieces of information, P times P plus 1 over 2. And if you had a mean structure, you would throw the other P on top of there. All right. Well, I want you to imagine like the simplest model that we could think of in our world. And it would be like a regression model where you've got X with a path coming into Y. And so in that model, let's think of all the parameters we have. We have an exogenous X that has a variance of X. We have a path coefficient from X to Y, and then we have a residual variance for Y, whatever that error variance is. So in that model, with two variables, one influencing the other, we have three parameters there. And again, I'm ignoring the mean structure, so I'm not counting the intercept here. So how does all of this translate into equations? Guinea pigs. (laughs) Exactly. You and I had an episode on path tracing and all the really cool stuff that the guinea pig obsessed Sewell Wright helped to create. Brilliant. I mean, path tracing is just so awesomely clarifying for so many things. If I asked you based on that model, what should the variance of X be as a function of what's going on in that model? And the answer is, well, the variance of X should just be the variance of X, right? Because there's nothing that's influencing X. X is exogenous. I go, okay, fine. That was an easy one. I say, what about the covariance between X and Y? What should the covariance between X and Y be based on this model? And whether you're doing algebra or doing path tracing, you would say, well, the covariance between X and Y should be a function of the path coefficient times the variance of the exogenous variable, the variance of X. And now I ask you, what, according to this model, should the variance of Y be? That takes a little bit more work, but using path tracing or algebra, we would say, well, the variance of Y decomposes into the squared path coefficient times the variance of X plus the error variance. And what we just did is we translated our model into its algebraic implications. And you know, when we do that, we wind up getting a series of equations. The equations are that the population variance of X should equal the population variance of X. Okay, that was a give me. The covariance between X and Y should equal an expression that we just had, the path coefficient times the variance of X. And then the variance of Y should equal the squared path coefficient times the variance of X plus the error variance. So if we do a full reckoning of all of this, for those of you keeping score at home, we have three equations and we have, it turns out, three unknowns, the variance of X, the path coefficient, and the error variance. These are the equations that we can think of as being solved in this particular path model. I go out and I gather data and I go, oh, look, I've got a sample variance for X. Oh, look, I've got a sample covariance between X and Y. Oh, look, I've got a sample variance for Y. Once I have the data from a sample, I can map those on to the model implied expressions that I have. I have an equation for the variance of X, an equation for the variance of Y, and an equation for their covariance, three equations and three unknowns. And they are not easy equations to solve, right? It's not like X plus Y equals 5. These are things that have squares and stuff is multiplied together. But in the end, we hope (laughs) this is solvable. This is, in theory, a just-identified system. That's right. And we can go back to the Ferrari, and you have three things you want out of that model. 
You want a variance of X, you want a regression coefficient, and you want a residual variance. That's what you want to buy. Mm -hmm. What you have in your bank statement is you observed a variance of X, a variance of Y, and a covariance between X and Y. Well, you want three things and you have three things. You can afford it, but you're wiped out. Yeah. Well, at least I think you can afford it. I understand that there's a match between the two. But sometimes just because you have the same number of equations and unknowns doesn't mean that you actually can solve for this particular system. And that's where the trickiness of identification starts to come in. And there are a lot of different ways to define identification. The way I don't want to define it is whether you have the same number of unknowns as you have pieces of information, right? I don't want to do it that way. You mean like I just said in in that (laughs) voice that you just used? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) The real way to do it and the way that we will never do it is to take those equations that we described where you have the model implied relations and see if you can take each one of the parameters in those equations and solve for them only in terms of the pieces of information that are on the table. And this takes work. Well, it doesn't take work for all of them. The solution to the variance of X is that it's the variance of X. All right, that one's easy. Can I rewrite the equation for the regression path coefficient in terms of only things that I observe And I remember from my regression class that the slope is equal to, what is it, the covariance of X and Y over the variance of X. So I could get that literally by pushing and pulling these three equations, and that would fall out. And that would tell me that the slope or path coefficient is identified because it can be expressed in terms of observable things. The trickiest of all of these is to push and pull and rearrange these equations for the error variance and to get it in terms of only things that we observe. But that could be done also. If you work at it, it would be the variance of y, that's something observed, minus the squared covariance between x and y divided by the variance of x. So the error variance, A, it can be written in terms of only things that we observe, And B, there's only one way to do it. So that parameter is just identified. So whereas we often talk about models, is it just identified? Is it over-identified? Is it under-identified? Actually, identification drills all the way down to the parameter level. That means that you might have some parameters in the model that are just identified, some that are over-identified, some actually could be under-identified within a model. But that ultimately is the test, whether or not you can write a given parameter solely in terms of observed information and how many different ways you can do it. Thank you very much, everybody. Good night. I always wanted to be a philosopher, but without doing all the readings, because the readings are really hard. It's big words, big Big words. words, and they're sometimes in Greek and, you know, whatever. But it introduces a fun philosophical concept, which is the pairing of necessary and sufficient. So what is a condition that is necessary? What is a condition that is sufficient? And then you get these fun things where you can have necessary but not sufficient. Mm -hmm. And you can have sufficient but not necessary. But what Greg is highlighting is when I counted on fingers and toes and said, oh, we observed three things and we want three things, that was a necessary condition. You have to show the bank statement Mm -hmm. that you at least have three pieces of information. That's necessary. That is not sufficient. What Greg just described is you have to go parameter by parameter and show that not only do you have three bucks and you want to buy three things, but that you can buy those in a way that uniquely defines each thing. 
And so as we move forward, it's really useful for us to think about necessary and sufficient conditions to establish identification. Oh, heck yeah, it is. Because the example that we just did had only two variables, which led to, if we're just talking about the covariance structure, three equations and three unknowns. And there was a fair amount of pushing and pulling just to be able to coax out those expressions for each parameter in terms of the observed variances and covariances that we had. And that was because they're nonlinear, right? There's squares and multiples and all that. If I tell you I have a three-variable model, and (laughs) nobody has just a three-variable model, then all of a sudden I have six variances and covariances, p times p plus one over two. And if we want to talk about means, I got another three means there. And then all of a sudden I have at least six equations that I'm trying to solve simultaneously. If I tell you I have 10 variables, 10 times 10 plus one over two, I have 55 equations with a whole bunch of unknowns. Nobody is going to try to rewrite each parameter in terms of the observed information and try to figure out how many different ways they can do that. So when Patrick is talking about necessary and sufficient and all of that, that's because we have to turn to rough rules and guidelines to be able to practice identification. And so people over the last 40 to 50 years have been formulating a variety of rules. And there's some really nice stuff in Boland's book, even from 89, that tries to pull some of that together and that we sort of refer back to. But maybe what would be most useful is if we start by thinking about different types of models, like a measured variable path model, confirmatory factor model, and then sort of a general structural equation model, and think about what kinds of conditions might be necessary or what might be sufficient to allow us to be able to think about identification in each of those types of models. Before we do, let's do a quick review. We've got three situations, under-identified, just-identified, and over-identified. Good. So to clarify, under-identified is you do not have enough information to uniquely solve for the parameters that you want. You're going to have to walk back home from the Ferrari. They're not even going to let you sit in the front seat of the Testarossa. You do P times P plus one divided by two, and you add up and you observed six pieces of information, but your model has nine parameters. You do the walk of shame back home. You are under-identified. Just identified is you have nine pieces of observed information. You have nine things that you want to estimate. Now, remember, that's necessary to have the nine equals the nine. But then you go through what we're going to talk about now, whether it be covariance algebra or just general heuristics. And you find that those are each uniquely defined as a function of what you have. You have a just identified system. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, you're not doing the walk of shame, but as we're <laughs> going to talk about, you're a coward. <laughs> and the reason is, is all you're doing is taking your nine pieces of information up to Roz's desk, <laughs> and she's given you nine <laughs> other things. If dividing the covariance by the variance is important to you, go right ahead. That's pretty good. That was pretty damn good for me. Uh Wow. All right, that's just identified. And what I mean by calling you an abject coward Mm -hmm. is all we're doing is rescaling what we already have in ways that have some meaning to us. But we're not imposing any restrictions on our parameter space that can become testable hypotheses. When we move to over-identified, 
Maybe we have nine pieces of information that we observed, but we're only going to estimate six things. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to see, well, how close can I reproduce them nine things with them six things? And it turns out we got three degrees of freedom. And Popper's corpse is happy because we're conducting a testable hypothesis. All right, so that's where we're at. Under-identified, just-identified, over-identified. And now we can move to some heuristics to think about, all right, for your model, where do you fall on those three things? All right. Well, like I said, we can break this up into path models, confirmatory factor models, and then sort of putting those two things together and beyond. In terms of path models... There are some formal rules. You mentioned one right out of the gate, which sort of holds for everything, sometimes called the T rule. And that is where T is the total number of parameters that you have in your model. U is the number of unique pieces of information, for example, in your variance covariance matrix. T can't exceed U. That is necessary, but it is not sufficient to ensure that a path model is identified, let alone any other more complicated model. So if we need rules for path models, there are some things that start to get a little bit more in the weeds, something called the null beta rule or the recursive rule. Those are some of the labels that people have given to these things. Functionally speaking, when I have a measured variable path model, unless there's something really odd going on where maybe I have a path between two variables and then all of a sudden I want to covariate those same two variables residuals, unless I have something funky like that going on, you should almost be able to see the identification for a measured variable path model. And what I mean by that is there are things that are connected and there are things that are not connected. And if you can go in there and basically enumerate which things aren't connected, you will get a sense of if those things exist, then you're going to have over-identification, which is good. You're also going to get a sense of the number of degrees of freedom associated with that model. Usually, the number of paths that you're missing represent how brave you were, the number of restrictions that you were willing to put on your model, the number of things you were willing to say, I constrain that to zero that's going to reflect the number of degrees of freedom that your model is going to have. So I think it's usually hard to screw up identification when you just have a measured variable path model. Dan and I teach this SEM class together. And actually, if you're interested, we have a free workshop online that you can register for. It's a three-day SEM workshop, and it's at centerstat.org if you're a glutton for punishment. But we have what we call the common sense rule. <laughs> we have a bullet that says this is admittedly made up. But it's exactly what your point was, as I was smiling as you were talking about that, is it's the fairness. One, is you don't get something for nothing, is if you have two variables and you observed one covariance between X and Y, and that's all you got, you don't deserve anything more than one relation between those. Mm -hmm. If you have a feedback loop, if you have a regression with also a correlated disturbance between the two, that dog don't hunt. Yeah, exactly. So I tend to solve those identification problems by avoiding those kinds of models. And I don't have a problem avoiding some of them, really, because I think in a lot of cases they don't make sense is it okay if we move to introducing latent variables? It's like the old saying is, it's completely safe to work with explosives until it's not. <laughs> I feel like identification is exactly that. It's incredibly straightforward to deal with identification until it's not. And bring on stage left latent variables, and now it's a whole new ballgame. It totally is a new ballgame because... Latent variables are the people that you invite to a potluck who don't bring any food, right? They, <laughs> seriously, they just show up and they eat stuff 
but they didn't bring anything to the table, right? Not a bottle of wine, not some crappy green bean casserole, not the not the meatballs that you soak in grape jelly and barbecue sauce, nothing. And so latent variables just come in and they start using up, spending your information that the variables worked so hard to prepare and bring to the table. So, you know, when I said you could just look at a measured variable path model and kind of see its identification status, those bets are kind of off when you get a latent variable into the system. First, I'm going to steal that in my own teaching. Latent variables are somebody who shows up at the potluck without bringing anything, which I have to admit, the number of times I've shown up at a potluck without bringing anything. Uh But second, think about how we define a latent variable. And we have a prior episode a couple of years ago about this. And Bolin has a nice paper in 2002, an annual review of psychology about what are latent variables. And not overly simplifying is a latent variable is something in our model that we believe to exist and want to estimate the presence for, but we don't have a column in our data matrix that has numerical values on that. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about our P times P plus one divided by two, those are only the unique pieces of information we have for what is observed in our data matrix and in sachets three latent factors <laughs> and they start going over to the beer cooler to which they did not contribute nope and those are things that are added to the parameterization of the model but they're going to be drinking beer that only the manifest variables brought that's exactly right and so there are certain things that we think about when we have latent variables first of all because there's no column of numbers associated with them They don't even have a metric, right? So if we don't assign them a scale right out of the gate, then all bets are off. So as everybody knows, we have to do something to assign a latent variable metric. And that is fundamentally an identification problem. You might have a one-factor model with 10 indicators. Beautiful. So you got a mess of loadings, a mess of error variances. But you know what? You're going to have 55 variances and covariances in your data. So the loadings and error variances that you are going to estimate are not even going to put a dent in that 55. But all bets are off for estimating things unless you nail down the scale of the factor. And that is quite literally an identification problem. And if you go through the algebra of it, you can see the problem. The variance of the factor is always next to the loadings, always. And you can never pull the two apart. So you got to nail something down. And we either nail down the factor variance, typically to one, or we nail down a loading, also typically to one. But you know what? You don't have to nail the factor loading down to one. You could nail it to negative one or 14 or 13.8 or your home address. Don't confuse people. One. Okay. (laughs) It's just one. You set it to one, people. Don't set it to your home address. (laughs) Set it to one. But you could. (laughs) So we'll assume that you figured out how you want to scale your latent variables in typical ways. Or more creative ways. After that, then there are some heuristics that we might use to try to figure out whether or not a confirmatory factor model is identified. Some practical heuristics, like something that we call the three indicator rule. The idea that any factor that you have, if it has at least three indicators and you don't have some error covariances operating within that factor, then that winds up being locally identified. And if every factor you have in your model subscribes to that, then you're okay. In fact, you can even go down to two indicators. So a two indicator rule, 
seems weird if there's a three indicator rule, but fine, two indicator rule that you could have factors even with only two indicators and still have identification as long as those factors co-vary with each other. Because essentially what you're doing is you're drawing information from the other factors indicators through the relation that those factors have. And those are some of the kinds of practical things that we look for. Have we scaled our factors? Do we appear to have enough indicators? And we tend to be in okay shape. Exactly. What's interesting is that's just for the CFA, the confirmatory factor analysis. We can go ahead and shrug, go up to the whiteboard, make some covariances, single-headed arrows, where it becomes a full SEM, where one factor predicts another factor. And then it's kind of neat because the heuristics just generalize. Mm -hmm. So Bolin talks about you can first identify the latent variable structure by two indicator rule, three indicator rule. Then using path analysis rules, you can identify the structure. Yep. And then if the measurement is identified and the structure is identified, coolio. Yeah. So where do we go from here? Well, there are several places we can go. One is just to acknowledge that this stuff gets out of hand really, really fast, right? Yeah. Even growth models get challenging when we start playing around with error structures, right? Like in your LICMSR model, LCM, SR, we start to get parameters in the error structure and the errors are just like latent variables in the sense that they're coming to the party without bringing any food. And those start to get harder and harder to just sort of see your way through the identification unless you impose some guardrails on how you do the models. Yeah, and I had kind of a funny experience is 100 years ago, I gave a job talk and I was presenting not LCMSR stuff, but the predecessor of that, of the old model. And I was presenting and it was actually at Carolina that I was presenting for that job. And so this would have been 1999. Wow. And I was using transparencies, I kid you not. <laughs> and it opened to Q&A and I was beside myself in fear because this was a legit quant program. I was a clinical PhD. I was terrified from start to finish. And a very senior person in the room raised their hand and said, well, have you established the identification of this model? And it was the worst possible question to get for the reasons that you're talking about is for some of these models, it's almost impossible to establish general conditions of identification. This was fairly hot off the presses and I had not established identification and I paused and I looked at the screen and I looked back and I said, well... It converged. (laughs) And the guy laughed. And I think that was the answer he was looking for. I don't know, but it converged. Right. There are certain circumstances where it might not be analytically possible to unambiguously establish identification for a given model. No matter how many times you ask Bauer to do it. Dude, he does not (laughs) respond to those emails. So unkind. But the doing of identification is really hard as models get more complicated. And, you know, I will confess right alongside of you that when you and I create new models, and that's partly what methodologists do, right? Laser cannons on Annie's flower shop. Absolutely. Then, you know, you don't always know. You can't always establish identification, whether you can't because you can't. or <laughs> It's a lowercase yes, y yeah. or an uppercase y. It's subtle, but it's important. <laughs> 
And so you often just rely on, well, hell, it ran and I got something. But in practice, you know, as we sort of confess, that's exactly what we wind up doing. And it established that we got a solution here. We don't necessarily know that it isn't a local as opposed to a global. We try to avoid local problems by having lots of different start values. And in those different start values, if it keeps going to the same place, we go, whoo, I guess that converged and it must be identified and all of that. We haven't really established it. We've just sort of prayed our way out of it. And we don't know that if we got another sample that we would experience the same behavior unless we truly establish that we have identification. So just because we got a solution doesn't mean that our model is identified. On the other hand, if we don't get a solution, it could be for a variety of reasons. It could be that our model is set up in a way that's identified, but we have some empirical things, some things in the data that usually are heading off to zero, which makes parts of our model not function. So we might get an empirical under-identification. We might have an overall under-identification that we just really weren't aware of. And, well, unfortunately, it will cause software to give us messages that are entirely unhelpful. But what happens when we have a genuine under-identification is that the second derivatives wind up being zero, which means that we have these flat spots along our likelihood function and the program can't find where to go. So when you flip that over to try to get asymptotic standard errors, we get these infinite standard errors. And that could be because we wound up in a local unviable solution, or it could be that our problem is broader associated with our model. And software really isn't helpful for these kinds of things. So identification in practice, there's a lot of praying involved, I have to say. And there's an old phrase I like is the only thing worse than having no map is having a bad map. (laughs) And software is sometimes like that, which is there'll be estimation problems. Maybe it doesn't converge. Maybe you can't invert something. And it will say often in all caps because it yells at you (laughs) that parameter 45 may be unidentified. Yeah. All right. Now, sometimes that's really helpful. You can go and look at parameter 45. You get the output. You get the technical output. What is parameter 45? Oh, it's this covariance. Sometimes that is the source of the problem. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's in the neighborhood of the problem. Sometimes it's not related to the problem at all. So you have to be very careful in that way. But what I often tell students is if you're doing a dissertation proposal or a grant proposal or something like that, it is important to make a comment on identification if you're able, as to say, even if it's in a footnote or if it's in a sentence, we have established that we can uniquely identify the model as proposed, something like that. That's about all you're going to do. Where it really comes in, at least in my work, is you're working with a model and it doesn't converge and you have an estimation problem. There are a whole bunch of reasons why that might happen. I got to tell you, if you got the usual suspects and you line them up by who's the guy who usually hassles you in this kind of situation, it's the identification guy. Yeah. And I have to say, as I look toward the future of this issue, I really hope that software does a better job. And I don't mean that it can't. I mean, they're choosing not to. It is possible, for example, to have a model that's under-identified, but only be under-identified locally. There can be a part of a model that's not working, whether it's empirical or it is more analytical. 
but that other parts of the model can be functioning just fine. It is possible for software to give you solutions for parts of a model when other parts aren't solvable. That would be hugely diagnostic for us. Even if you can't nail down which one of the suspects, you have just taken a lot of people out of the lineup. Software doesn't tend to do that. Along those lines, it would actually be possible for software to tell you what parts of your model are locally just identified or locally over-identified. You know, if you think about in a model where you have a number of exogenous measured variables and they co-vary, that part of the model is just identified. All their relations are modeled. But there are other things that are over-identified, under-identified. It's actually possible to identify those parts of the model and to get fit assessments for those parts of the model. And programs are spectacularly unhelpful at the local level and tend to be so focused on the global level, whether it's global fit or global identification. And if we're trying to diagnose problems, whether it's identification problems or fit problems, There's this whole area where software could do a lot more for us, and I really hope it does move into that direction because otherwise it's a lot of hit and miss for the user who is trying to do more and more ambitious models, which is really what we're doing. And I think you just described two or three really exciting dissertations. What's interesting is a lot of work has already been done. We don't want to convey that people have not thought about this before. There's even some recent stuff that has been done on model identification. And we'll put some of these citations into the show notes if you're interested in that. But as Greg said, there are a lot of directions that we could go in terms of better understanding our models, the nature of our models, within the model where we're being more courageous and less courageous, where in a model we may have an omnibus analytical identification, but a local under-identification, especially empirical. Yep, totally. There's so many interesting aspects to this. It is a very deep rabbit hole. But the purpose of this episode was, I think, to give people a better idea of what identification is, how it works, how it ties to the ways we think about things almost logically, and then how to think about it in the context of models and maybe to empathize a little bit, you know, maybe to confess that we kind of wing this too. But it's no less important, though, for people to try to go into this with as much thought about their models as possible and maybe not give the job talk (laughs) without thinking about things. And possibly the biggest recommendation we can make here is Photoshop a bank statement before (laughs) you go to the Ferrari dealership. (laughs) I'm just saying. Uh Uh-huh. That's all I got, buddy. All right. On that note, thanks very much, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. We hope you found this episode. Very shagadelic. (laughs) Okay, you really got to stop doing that. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go to listen to something to help them feel identified. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch, like t-shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks from Redbubble.com where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that would have had the maximum likelihood of being rejected by R.A. Fisher. Today's episode has been sponsored by Survival Analysis, what many of us do to figure out how we are going to make it through the holiday season. And by Statistical Learning, 
something that our Amazon accounts seem a lot better at than the students in our undergraduate classes. And finally, by Twitter, now offering to indicate that a scale you developed is valid for just $8 a month. This is most definitely not NPR.